Francine was losing her faith. Herself as a Christian, being part of a church, even being pretty involved. But questions had begun gnawing at her and they'd become pretty serious doubts. Her friend Michelle had noticed something was going on and so they chatted over coffee. She listened to the questions and doubts, experiences and disappointments and she felt overwhelmed by everything Francine was wrestling with. But as the owner of the cafe started hinting it was time to leave, Michelle said, can I just ask you one question? Where's Jesus in all this? What are you going to do with him? Who do you think he is? Today we're returning to Mark's Gospel, and that's the question of Mark's Gospel. Who do you say he is? Who do you say Jesus is? If you're here today and you're checking Christian things out, that's the question for you. If you're weighed down by doubts, awash with questions you can't answer, that's the question for you. Now, if you're a Christian, this is the question for you. Because if you're going to trust Jesus and live for him, you need to know him right. Really know who he is. As we return to Mark's biography of Jesus today, this is the question Jesus asks. Jesus asks you and me, what do we make of him? But more than that, he gives us the answer to his own question. And his answer surprises, even scandalizes his first followers as they finally uh, get to see close to the complete picture of who Jesus is. Uh, the events we're reading about today, they happen in the context of the second of Jesus' miraculous feedings and as the threat from the religious leaders is ramping up. That's what's happened earlier in chapter 8. I think it was Mitch that preached on that part of chapter 8 earlier this year. And as Jesus enters the town of Bethsaida, you can see it on the map there, on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, a very strange healing takes place. So read with me from verse 22. Uh, get your Bibles open. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. They came to and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit in the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked around up and said, people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. It's a bit strange, isn't it? It really stands out because so far, Jesus has had no problems. He's healed so many people. Sometimes Mark summarises. He just says, and wherever he went, into villages, towns or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. Jesus hasn't had any trouble yet. Even just touching his clothes brings healing. Why has he got to have two goes at it this time? 
Why does his first touch leave this man with blurred or confused vision? Why does it take two touches for this man to fully see? It can't be that Jesus wasn't able or he made a mistake. Uh, This unique two-step healing is not explained. It's a great question to ask, but we're not told why. But I wonder if it's got something to do with what happens as they move north towards Caesarea Philippi. Because as they're making their way north, Jesus asks them the question. I reckon one of the most important questions ever. So verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. This is the icebreaker question. He's going to drive it home in a moment. The answers seem a bit strange. How could Jesus be John the Baptist or Elijah? Elijah's been dead about 900 years. And we heard how John was executed by King Herod in chapter 6. How could Jesus be either of them? Well, we heard a hint back in chapter 6 when King Herod wondered if Jesus was John the Baptist back from the dead. A bit weird, but it's what people were saying. And as for Elijah, the last word of the last book of the prophets says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Malachi's prophecy is that the day of the Lord, the time of God coming in judgment and salvation, that day would be precipitated by some kind of coming of Elijah. Maybe he would return in the chariots like he was taken. Or maybe like Elisha, the prophet who followed after um, Elijah, who followed in his footsteps, maybe another prophet would arise with the same spirit as Elijah had. Either way, people thought Jesus was John back from the dead or Elijah or a prophet like Elijah. Or maybe, option three, maybe he was another of the long line of prophets, not necessarily the one Malachi had promised, but a prophet nevertheless. Now that's the warm-up question. I reckon as, as you hear the options that the disciples gave, I reckon they agreed with the crowd, but maybe some of them did. Next, Jesus gets pointy, verse 29. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Peter sees. He's got it. Uh, As readers of Mark's gospel, and I know we're coming back to it after quite a long break, but we already know what the right answer is. We were told at the very beginning, Mark 1.1, the first thing you hear is you open up Mark's gospel, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So we know when Peter gives the answer, we know he's got it right. 10 out of 10, well, 1 out of 1. Because of the miracles and the teaching, we've seen and he has seen that Jesus isn't just a prophet, not even a great prophet like Elijah. Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed. In Greek, it gets translated as Christ. 
Uh, what does Peter mean when he says Jesus is the Messiah? He'd be thinking of which says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up against the rulers, band together against the Lord and against his anointed, literally his Messiah. Psalm 2 is about God's chosen king, his anointed, his Messiah, who would rule over the nations of the earth. Uh, Down in verse 8 it says, and this is the Lord speaking to his Messiah, his chosen king, Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. When Peter says, you are the Messiah, that's the kind of thing he's probably thinking, that Jesus is going to smash the nations, starting with Rome and then conquering the world. And finally, here in the region of Caesarea Philippi, his eyes have been opened and he's seen the truth, the truth that as readers of the beginning, or has he? Verse 31 He, Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter is thinking, fantastic, to break the nations into pieces... But Jesus has something else in mind. He's not going to smash, but be smashed. He's going and die at the hands of the religious establishment. It's not what Peter expected. And what Peter says is even more jarring because did you the next sentence he switches. He switches from you are the Messiah. Peter says Messiah. Jesus then starts talking about the Son of Man, from Messiah to Son of Man. Why? Son of Man comes from Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, there's a vision of God. Uh, He's called the Ancient of Days. In his bright glory, surrounded by his holy ones. This is Daniel 7, starting at verse 9. It's up on the screen. As I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. And then into this heavenly court comes the Son of Man, who is in God's glory. So it continues in verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a Son of Man, coming, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Peter mentions the Messiah. Jesus says the Son of Man is going to suffer. Jesus is pulling together the promise of God's 
king from Psalm 2 and plenty of other places in the Old Testament. And this vision of the Son of Man, a human being who is given God's glory and authority. And then shockingly, Jesus says that the glorious Son of Man, God's Messiah, isn't going to conquer. He's going to suffer. And Peter flips He's left everything to follow Jesus. He's left his small business to follow Jesus. His nets are still probably sitting there beside the sea. And this Jesus doesn't even understand the scriptures. Doesn't Jesus see who the Messiah, the Son of Man is? But it's Peter whose vision is still blurred. It's Peter who needs a second touch before he can see. Verse 33, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. By calling him Satan, he's recalling the parable of the soils, the seed that falls on the path. That's the one where Satan snatches up the word before it's even got a chance to sprout. Peter's rebuke, if Jesus would hear it, Peter's rebuke would snuff out the gospel before it's even be. And when Jesus says, behind me, he's saying the same words he did when Peter and Andrew were fishing. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Behind and follow, it's the same word. Jesus is calling Peter back to true discipleship. A disciple doesn't tell Jesus what to do. A disciple follows. A disciple is behind the one they follow, even though it costs everything. Verse 34, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. When someone says, That's just the cross I have to bear, most of the time they're talking about some kind of inconvenience or maybe a difficulty or frustration they're facing. Uh, That's not what Jesus meant. If you're carrying a cross, there's only one place you're going. Jesus says that's what following him looks like. Denying yourself, giving up your life in order to save it. What does this mean? Deny ourselves must at least mean denying our sinful desires. 
In the context of Peter's rebuke, it's putting to death our desire to, to conquer, getting rid of hopes of glory in this life for the sake of the next. We've just finished one Peter. And so you can tell by the time he writes that letter, Peter's got it. By the time he writes that letter, Peter sees. Denying ourselves is standing firm even when we suffer for the name of Christ. Not being ashamed of Jesus when people mock hate. Verse 38 is serious. Verse 38 is serious. I know there's been times when I've been ashamed of Jesus and his words. What about you? In Mark, there's a time Peter is ashamed of Jesus, denying he knows him. Yet he finds forgiveness. Verse 38 is a serious warning, though there's grace. There's grace because the Lord Jesus, who is now in his Father's glory, surrounded by the holy angels, Jesus, who in his essential, the ascension, the Son of Man, came to the Father, Daniel 7 came true and was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, the glorious Lord Jesus is also the one who died the death we deserve to die, the righteous for the unrighteous. To bring us to God. By the time Peter wrote that letter, he sees it. But at this point, Peter still doesn't see. At least not clearly. But six days later, the fog begins to lift. As Peter and two other disciples get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. So this is verse 2, Mark 9, 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, uh, sorry, Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Sound familiar? There's lots of similarities with Moses on Mount Sinai receiving the law. And also, Jesus' dazzling white clothes, and that's how the Ancient of Days is described in Daniel 7. These three disciples are getting a glimpse of Jesus' divine glory. The glory given to the Son of Man by the Ancient of Days. Why do Elijah and Moses show up? Jesus could have just gone the dazzling white thing and that in itself would have opened their eyes. Why do Elijah and Moses show up? Well, we're not told. Though the prophecy of Malachi, of Elijah coming before the day of the Lord is ringing loud in our ears. And possibly God's in Deuteronomy 18 that he would raise up a prophet like Moses is in the background. Though We're in good company. We're not the only ones who don't quite know what's going on. Peter doesn't either. Verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. 
Notice put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Once again, Peter probably would have done better to keep his mouth shut. But our ears are drawn to the voice from the cloud, the voice of God saying, listen to Jesus. This is what Peter needed to hear. Don't tell Jesus what he can and can't do. Listen to him. And that voice speaks to us, doesn't it? Listen to Jesus. And the disciples do. As they come down the mountain, they listen to Jesus talk again about rising from the dead and ask him what the deal is with Elijah. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. He's already come. At first you think he might be talking about what's just happened. Though no one did anything to Elijah on the mountain. He was there and then he was gone. So what's Jesus talking about? Well, when John the Baptist is introduced to us in Mark 1, he sounds just like Elijah. Mark 1.6 says he's wearing camel's hair for clothes and a leather belt, the same as Elijah in 2 Kings. This is from 2 Kings. They replied he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. They're very telltale signs. John comes in the spirit of Elijah, the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, and he was rejected by the religious leaders and ultimately killed at the hands of Herod. And with Jesus' words ringing in their ears that the Son of Man must suffer many things, They're probably scratching their heads as to where they were going to find that in the scriptures, but they will. He's going to suffer many things, even death. The reminder of John's fate must have been confronting. Jesus isn't speaking in riddles. When he says that the Son of Man must die, he means it. And he also means it when he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Will you? Will you follow Jesus? Our sight is still blurry. It won't seem worth it. So the first question we need to answer is, who is Jesus? It's the question to ask if you're struggling with doubts. It's the question to answer if you're exploring faith. It's the question we've got to keep asking, even if we're Christian, because like Peter, often we form Jesus into our own expectations. Then we meet Jesus in the Bible and we rebuke him and say, Jesus, you can't be like that. 
You can't expect that from me. Who do you think you are? He's the son of man who must suffer death on a cross for us. He's the Messiah who three days later rose from the dead and ascended to share in the Father's kingdom and glory. That is who Jesus is. And when we see him clearly, we know taking up our cross is worth it. We have the benefit of living on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We know Jesus' words are true. He is risen and reigning. But that doesn't make the call to discipleship, his call to take up our cross and deny ourselves. He makes the same call today and it's still a hard call. But it's true. What good is it to gain the world yet lose your soul? Do you believe this? Will you follow Jesus? That's what we're on about here at church, helping, encourage, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, to take the next step with Jesus. Whether you're like the people who know who Jesus is, we'd love to help you meet and see Jesus. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a while, but hearing his words reminds you of times you've put them across, denied Christ instead of denying The great news is Jesus died for people like you and me, died to bring forgiveness. Yes, he calls us to a high standard, but in his grace, he accepts even Peter's, even you and me, and lets us see his glory. Father God, please open our eyes. Completely heal our spiritual blindness that we might see Jesus. Let us see him truly. We praise you for sending Jesus, your Messiah, the suffering Son of Man, who suffered for us and rose again that we might share in his eternal glory. Please give us strength, patience and perseverance to take up our cross and follow him. May we not be ashamed of Jesus. We pray for those of us who have anxieties and doubts. Please comfort us, show us Jesus. May we be a church of people who take up our cross, deny ourselves and follow Jesus. We ask this for his glory's sake. Amen.